Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today is Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. Coming up on Roller Martin on the filter. All 50 states, y'all, and the District of Columbia, my Lord, have certified the election for Donald Trump. But his supporters can't take it. Y'all realize they're issuing death threats against other Republicans? Yeah, wait, wait, wait to explain, y'all, this nonsense. Joe Biden is the president-elect. They can't handle it. Speaking of can't handle it, 17 states have asked the Supreme Court to factor in their support of an effort by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a complete idiot, to sue to reverse President-elect Joe Biden's projected win in the Electoral College. We'll tell you how stupid this is. Civil rights groups leaders met with President-elect Joe Biden yesterday. We'll talk with NAACP President Derek Johnson about what he also proposed for a leader when it comes to race and inclusion in Georgia. Republicans are trying to restrict mail voting and roll back the election laws that they passed. We'll talk with Georgia Representative Akima Williams, who of course is headed to Congress and the CEO of the New Georgia Project. 
Also from Georgia, my interview with John Ossoff. Today, Joe Biden formally introduced General Lloyd Austin, retired General Lloyd Austin, as his nominee to lead the Pentagon. We'll show you his speech. Also, we'll give you an update on the COVID-19 vaccine. Talk with an African-American who wants to help HBCUs and their testing. Plus, COVID-19 has devastated the job market for African-Americans. We'll tell you about a virtual career fair that wants to hire a thousand people. Plus, civil rights and FBI investigators are looking into the fatal shooting of an Ohio black man whose family says that he was holding not a gun, but a sandwich. In Minneapolis, a man has spent nearly two decades behind bars. He may have a chance for release due to a panel of legal experts reviewing his case. And today's crazy-ass white woman gives her take on coronavirus. Y'all, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Yesterday, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the president-elect and the VP-elect, both met with civil rights leaders uh, to discuss a variety of issues, including his cabinet appointments and his agenda when he becomes president. During the meeting, the groups touched on racial equity, social justice, and increased diversity in the Biden-Harris cabinet. Now, uh, of course, we talked about this on yesterday, uh, about this very thing. Now, in an interview prior to meeting with them, Biden said, quote, their job is to push me and my job is to keep my commitment and make the decision. Joining me now is NAACP President Derek Johnson. Derek, glad to have you on Roland Martin Unfiltered. First off, um, sure. um, we, we, we look at uh, news coming out that he is going to name uh, Congresswoman Marsha Fudge as Secretary of HUD. Today, of course, unveiling a retired four-star General Lloyd Austin as his Secretary of Defense and mm -hmm. uh, picking Tom Vilsack to head the USDA. And then, of course, we're still waiting for the other cabinet positions. So far, how would you assess uh, the picks being made for not only administration jobs, but also cabinet-level uh, jobs by the Biden-Harris White House? Uh, too early to tell. Uh, we have another 10 or so cabinet positions to be selected. There are over uh, 4,000 uh, appointments to be made, only about 1,300 uh, require Senate confirmation. And so we are early in the process. As an organization, we want to make sure uh, we set a cadence uh, uh, in terms of our conversation. Uh, for us, it's more about the policy priorities. Uh, so no matter who is selected, there is a clear uh, accountability dealing with uh, racial equity, something that he said that he will be accountable for. Uh, and when you talk about him being accountable for racial equity, you talk about this uh, position uh, that was mentioned yesterday when it comes to racial equity. Absolutely. You know, if if you say uh, one of the four pillars of this administration would do a racial equity, then we want a follow through on that commitment. I think we think it's a good thing. It's a forward looking approach. And uh, the only way to 
make sure that happens is create a portfolio that somewhat manage that portfolio to ensure racial equity goes across all departments. Very similar to what he did with climate, which is another pillar. He created a post for a climate uh, envoy uh, that, that's a direct advisor to him to address issues of climate. We want the same thing for racial equity. Uh, but is that necessary? But, but when you talk about a, a, a particular position, or, or, or is that really about, um, again, an individual who has the authority uh, to execute um, what needs to be happening. I, I think about uh, Bob Brown. Bob Brown, of course, served uh, in the Nixon administration. He was an MLK to, excuse me, he was a lieutenant to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. before going to the Nixon administration. Go to my iPad, please. This is a cover of his book. Uh, that is, uh, You Can't Go Wrong Doing Right, How a Child of Poverty Rose to the White House and Helped Change the World. I interviewed Bob. Bob, of course, lives in High Point, North Carolina. I interviewed Bob. Uh, and one of the things that we talked about, he said, you have to have, uh, he said, you got to have the full backing of the president uh, to be able to get these things done. When he's serving that capacity, he's arguably uh, in the history of the most powerful black presidential aide. And when he met with folks, when he met with departments, when he when he when he got the four star uh, for uh, Chappie James, when we came to the MBDA, um, they it was made perfectly clear Nixon says what Bob wants, Bob gets. That's how it has to get done. Biden has to give that type of authority uh, to someone to make these things happen. And that's the, why this position must report directly to the president. It has to be accountable to the president, and it must be a person who's carrying out the vision of the president that's clearly defined and that all departments and cabinet posts uh, should adhere to. Racial equity is not about one cabinet versus another. It is the, uh, everything that's done within this administration writ large. And in order for that to be effective, someone must hold that portfolio. Someone must be accountable for some outcomes that are measurable. And the outcomes that are measurable are directed through the West Wing from the president's office. Uh, uh, and this person is holding that portfolio. Is it a direct report to the president? So, uh, so would, uh, we look at uh, Congressman Cedric Richmond, who's going to be over the Office of Public, Public Engagement. He was uh, a part of this conversation yesterday. Uh, would that not be his portfolio? Would that not be something uh, to do? Or is this something separate? No, this is separate. I think uh, Cedric Richmond is an advisor to the president. Uh, he brings much more in terms of skills, knowledge, and relationships. Uh, if, that, if his position becomes that, then... That's the discretion of the president. We are saying that there needs to be a specific person who uh, is responsible for racial equity. That's the request. And what was the response? It was an ongoing conversation. There were uh, no uh, response or demand. This is the first of several conversations that we will be having around a myriad of topics. This is the request from NAACP. There were conversations about all facets of the administration. And how do we establish the ongoing dialogue to make sure we are providing an opportunity to give input as he also share uh, progress of the administration? Uh, earlier today, uh, he unveiled his pick for the Pentagon, that is retired four-star General Lloyd Austin. Folks, if y'all could roll some of that video, no need to play the audio mm -hmm. yet. And, in that, and of course, and already uh, people on Capitol Hill uh, who are saying that, uh, that a waiver should not be granted to allow Lloyd Austin to serve as the first African-American to serve as Secretary of Defense. Of course, waivers were a waiver was given when James Mattis uh, was named by Donald Trump to be the Secretary of Defense. You have to be out of the military at least seven years.
Austin retired four years ago. Uh, has the NAACP taken a position on that? Uh, do you support uh, Austin uh, becoming the Secretary of Defense? And are you calling on Democrats uh, and Republicans to grant that waiver to allow Lord Austin to serve? Uh, if, if he's qualified to serve in office, if we have set of precedents or providing waivers, absolutely. Uh, there is no reason why he shouldn't be treated any uh, different than uh, General Mattis when he was uh, situated in the same posture. We need individuals who can instill confidence in our armed forces. We have just witnessed uh, the, the sitting president allowing a foreign nation to take a bounty out against uh, uh, men and women who are serving in the military uh, with no repercussion. So we have to instill more confidence for individuals who are making the ultimate sacrifice to protect this nation. So I that, believe General Austin, it would be uh, a, a fine addition to the cabinet. Uh, but there, but there are Democrats uh, who, uh, first of all, about seventeen of them uh, in, who voted against giving the waiver to Mattis already. Folks like Senator Elizabeth Warren has said they would not grant uh, a waiver uh, to Austin. Some people are even saying that, uh, with with this being the case, Democrats could very well uh, torpedo. Uh, Lloyd Austin serving as Secretary of Defense. What would that say to African-Americans, uh, especially to black folks in the military, uh, that uh, potentially the first black Secretary of Defense uh, would not be able to uh, take that job because Democrats say they would not grant such a waiver, saying they believe that only a civilian should be uh, in charge of the, the Department of Defense? I think it's too early. Yeah, we have not even uh, started the new Congress. Uh, we have a special election that uh, is taking place uh, January 5th. There probably will be many more uh, conversations about this topic. And as people consider and weigh options, opinions and positions will evolve. Uh, I want to ask you also, uh, the, uh, we, had, we had John Boyd on the show last week with the Black Farmers Organization, National Black Farmers Association. Uh, they were vehemently against Tom Vilsack becoming uh, Agriculture Secretary for a second time. He served eight years under uh, President Barack Obama. Joe Biden has indicated he's going to head, name him as head of the USDA. Congressman Jim Clyburn and others, they were pushing Marsha Fudge for that particular job. She clearly she clear is getting HUD. Um, what about their concerns, and are there any plans uh, for you and others uh, to meet with Vilsack to talk about uh, his role as head of the USDA when it came to, uh, you know, when it came to issues like uh, racial justice? Uh, a former uh, officer in the Office of Civil Rights on the USDA uh, released a letter saying he should not get that particular job, and John Boyd. Uh, released a letter saying that if he is going to be the nominee, he must make a firm commitment to end racism in the USDA. Well, we were out early uh, opposing the nomination of Bill Sack. We were out early, perhaps one of the first out in support of Marsha Fudge to uh, assume the position of Department of Ag. Department of Ag budget is about two-thirds uh, food nutrition. She's, she has served as uh, chair of the subcommittee uh, for child nutrition for multiple years. She understands the agencies for far too long. We have trended this agency to be an agency for large farmers and not small farmers, not addressing food nutrition. Uh, Department of Ag is almost uh, many government within the government. They have far more services than just agriculture concerns. They do home loans. Uh, they provide support for rural electric cooperative. Uh, the gamut of the uh, Department of Ag is huge. Uh, and we continue to raise the questions around this appointment. But at the end of the day, it is the discretion of the president. And as a result of that, if this is going to be the person, we must sit down and have a conversation, talk about how do we move forward? How do we address 
injuries of the past, whether it's Shirley Sherrod, Black Farmers, or how electric cooperatives have excluded African-Americans for fully participating in the ownership of those electric companies. Uh, there's much more room for this discussion uh, as we look forward and as an opportunity to make sure that his appointment come with a diverse supporting cast of de deputy uh, secretaries, among other things. Um, one of the things that uh, we haven't talked, talked to you in a while here, uh, we have had, we've come out of this summer, of course, in the aftermath of the death of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, there has been a, a significant amount of energy uh, from various groups, foundations, corporations, uh, when mm -hmm. it comes to offering support uh, to various groups. Uh, how has the NAACP fared in terms of, uh, in terms of donations from various folks? And, and what are your plans, especially? Uh, those resources uh, and, and but not only that holding those very companies accountable uh, when it comes to the dollars so for instance you know the, like Adidas a good perfect example when they initially talked about they wanted to give 10 million dollars and the, the black and white employees said they ain't good enough the next day they had to commit to a hundred million dollars and then commit to uh, to to hiring a certain number of black and Hispanic uh, and workers other people are challenging these companies when it comes to pay when it comes to duties the advertising industry is being targeted as well and so so I'm curious to know uh, how how has the NAACP been navigating these waters in terms of dollars raised, but also challenging these various companies, saying it's one thing to put out, we support Black Lives Matter, but how are you actually supporting black employees? Well, the NAACP, what has been interesting, we began to see a strong uptick in support as a result of COVID and our immediate response to COVID, starting with a Peloton Hall meeting. That support did not start with corporations, it started with individual donations. After George Floyd, we received more support from individual dollars, uh, given small dollar support. We were actually surprised, but yet, uh, as we continue to be more vocal over the summer, as we continue to be vocal through the election cycle, as we had a very strategic plan to uh, turn out the vote in for November, we touched over 18 million uh, people, among other things. It's really good, strong st stats. We found that our individual donor contribution outpaced some of the corporate donations. Now, we receive a tremendous amount of support from corporate donations as well, but our mission is the same. Our mission will continue to be focused on ensuring that we improve the quality of life for African Americans in the areas that we list and fight against discrimination. Uh, we are in the midst of at least three lawsuits right now against corporations. Over the summer, we took on Facebook and we refused to take Facebook money when many other groups stood on the sideline and would not join in on the Stop Hate Profit campaign. Uh, as that, uh, that campaign began to pick up momentum, then others want to jump, jump in. Our mission would be the same. And under my leadership, you have seen a tremendous growth, not only in the membership of the NAACP, the presence of the NAACP. We are beginning to hire uh, a different caliber of staff uh, to come in and help reestablish the prominence of the NAACP in ways in which we have not seen us show up at least the last 10 years. Uh, and, 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 and speaking of that, um, you know, one of the things that people are also looking at is when we talk about not just impact uh, when it comes to lawsuits, but also what's happening on the ground. So, for instance, uh, we got you know, critical races in Georgia. We've seen the folks there, Republicans are trying to change the laws there when it comes to voting because they lost uh, Joe Biden, uh, beat uh, Donald Trump there in Georgia, specifically in this runoff race. Uh, how much resources are the NAACP putting on the ground to get people out? 
out to vote uh, and how is that being driven uh, there? Because, again, it's going to be all about turnout. And we're seeing Cobb County slashing in half early voting locations. DeKalb County is actually increasing theirs. Uh, but there are a lot of black people who are very concerned that Republicans are going to try to stifle the black vote. What is the NAACP specifically doing uh, to protect black voters there in Georgia? Well, there's a couple of things. So in terms of the turnout, we are coordinating with uh, Stacey Abram, Insay, and many others around a massive get-out-the-vote program. Nine counties in the state of Georgia represent 45% of the total votes. There are 159 counties there. The southeast corridor of, of Georgia are counties where we need to run up the, the turnout of rural voters. We have a very strategic approach of, of an aggressive black radio buy, an aggressive digital buy to make sure that we communicate with voters effectively. We have an aggressive uh, direct mail program of infrequent voters, the same target population that we utilized during the uh, November elections. Uh, we have a no-touch canvassing going on on the ground. We convene our local units. We have more local units in the state of Georgia than anywhere else in the country. And we have a bigger footprint than any other group in, uh, in the state of Georgia. And so because we have people in rural communities that no one else exists, we have convened many of them we're providing resources directly to them. Much of this is being coordinated with through our state president, John Wood, uh, uh, James Woodall. But we also hired a staff person in Georgia who lives in Georgia, who's a part of the state conference to help coordinate the operation. So it is, it is a, a very robust program, along with uh, much of our election tools, such as the van and other things. So it would be a, a robust uh, operation. And that's on one side. On the other side, we, we have a, a, a uh, brought on several attorneys to monitor the elections. We partner with both the Lawyers Committee and LDF on certain lawsuits after the this past elections. I think we filed, uh, we either intervened, filed, or, or did amicus, and probably 24 of the Trump cases uh, from Michigan to Pennsylvania to Georgia to Nevada. And so our program is growing. It will continue to grow. But this Georgia election is really important, and we've actually had people sign up from outside of Georgia to do phone banking inside of Georgia. So it is a coordinated effort led from the ground up, but supported by the national office. All right, Derek, Derek Johnson, NAACP uh, CEO. We still appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, I want to bring in my panel, A. Scott Bolden, former chair of uh, National Bar Association Political Action Committee, Monique Presley, uh, of course, a legal analyst and crisis manager. Scott, I want to start with you, and that is, um, uh, you heard me talk about, uh, with Derek there, uh, he talked about this equity position uh, that's similar to, of course, uh, J uh, John Kerry. Uh, and, I, and I made the point about uh, Bob Brown, the role that he served. At the end of the day, you can put whatever title you want on it. Whatever, it could be an existing aide, it could be a position you create, but at the end of the day, they have to be able to have the same autonomy and authority that a Bob Brown did in the Nixon administration uh, to get the Minority Business Development Agency going, to get uh, Black's name as, as four-star generals, to deal with the issue of busing. Uh, again, the people, if people read, if they watch my interview with Bob Brown, just go to our YouTube channel, read his book, you really understand that the reason he was able, he had authority. Nixon gave him authority to to, to attend any meeting in the White House. Yeah, they made it clear. They made it clear to every federal agency, if Bob Brown calls, give him what he wants. That's how Bob was so effective uh, serving under Nixon. And, and, and that's pure power. That's real power with the endorsement of a sitting president, whether he was Republican or Democrat. Now. Here's the rub, though. That 
There weren't that many African-Americans in the Nixon administration, but that also contributed to Bob Brown's effectiveness, coupled with the power of the presidency behind him. What we got to be careful of with Biden, uh, Biden thinks we may, or his people may think, because he's got a diverse cabinet and he's got an African-American vice president, that that single sole envoy position may not necessarily be uh, uh, may not necessarily be necessary because because they're living racial equity every day. They have black people who are close who at the 7 a.m. meeting and the 8 a.m. meeting, like you like you said a few weeks ago, and that may not be necessary. I think it's necessary because if you really really make racial equity a pillar of your administration and your platform then step up and name someone and give them that power. That's what the NACP is really saying. And if he doesn't do it, that tells you a lot about what he thinks about such an aggressive move, but an important position to uh, to match up with the rhetoric that Biden and the Harris team have uh, projected and stated and professed uh, during this campaign. I think it's a great idea, but it has to be a powerful position. Other people in the administration who may have that responsibility, they got other responsibilities. What Derek is really saying is racial equity should be the sole responsibility of that individual who is an envoy on racial equity. Monique, um, is that even doable? Is it doable to talk about that one person uh, is their job for racial equity? Or does it, does it make sense to say, no, we're going to have somebody in every agency? Yes, I think that makes Well, it's an either and. Uh, I, I don't want to say that it's one or the other. I have three primary concerns. One, while I believe that personnel, that individual appointments are important, that people must be in positions of influence and of power, and that representation of us in those areas is important, and you know I'm fighting for it, um, where, where we're trying to keep the seed in California and we were fighting for, for Congresswoman Fudge to get the position she's in. So I certainly believe in that for black folk, for black women and black men. However, I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that the only way we can get policy initiatives to happen for black people is for a black person to be in place to do it. Uh, Biden is not black. Our, our vice president-elect is, is not black. And his, his plan for black America wasn't written only by black people or inspired only by influencers from the black community. So what is important to me is that every single plank of that plan be enacted, that our COVID relief, because we're hit harder by it, because we're frontline workers, environmental issues, because we suffer more because of it, uh, business relief, because 90% of black businesses didn't get it, black churches who have been more affected by the COVID shutdown than others and are now, as you and I talked about, Roland, being influenced by the banks quietly selling off their loans. Listen, I need the business to be done. And I'm not trying to put that on the hands of one black man or black woman. So while I would love for there to be a Biden whisperer, other than the vice president-elect Kamala Harris, who I don't want us to forget, is a black woman in the job who is the first one in the meeting and the last one in the meeting and is representing us. If, if we need someone else, fine. But I think we need a whole lot of someone else's. And the point is for the agenda that is in place that I believe is a right agenda to be met. 
Well, and let's just go ahead and put this out here. The fact of the matter is this here. Because Joe Biden is white, black folks are going to be a hell of a lot more damn aggressive than they were when Barack Obama was president. And they need to be. They need to leave the inauguration. Because any president, black, white, yellow, or brown, you're going to have to, they may agree with you conceptually, but you got to make them do it. We didn't make Barack Obama do near as much as we should have made him do. And with this Biden-Harris team, we've learned and we are affirmatively at the table now demanding accountability. We're going to keep and have to stay at that table, but we're going to have to make Biden do everything we want that uh, Monique just went through. Jobs, health care, election, election of black folks to replace uh, people who are going in the administration or the vice president. We are going to have to make this administration do what we want them to do. There is no time to sit back or sleep or, or, or smile on our laurels, if you will, because every day we got to continue to press because there are other groups, special interests or otherwise, who are pressing to make this administration do what they want them to do. We are in competition, right? And so we can't sleep. We got to leave the inauguration and we got to press every day on this administration to get what we want and to make them do what we want to make America better and to do, do better with African-Americans so that we can improve the quality of life of our communities of color. Uh, and, uh, and look, some folks, for some people, Monique, they're like, oh, my goodness, why are you saying that? But whether they want to own up to it or not, it was a lot of black folks who were like, ah, don't say nothing. The brother got too much on his plate. We really shouldn't ask for stuff because if we ask for too much stuff, you know, what, what, what white folks going to do when he, he'll keep him from getting a second term? And I kept saying, hell, a second term ain't guaranteed. You get what you can get. This, again, I, I expect to see. And again, I, I, I want to see even... Other folks, I get, that's fine. The meeting they had with the NAACP, with Mark Morrell in the Urban League and Sharpton National Action Network and Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP LDF and Christian Clark of the uh, of, uh, Lawrence Committee uh, and, and Melanie Campbell. But you know what? I want to see Tamika Mallory Until Freedom. Join with Color of mm -hmm. Change. Join with Black uh, Future Labs. Uh, and others say, you know, a meeting as well. Because, because I, bottom lines for me, I don't want there to be the one Negro meeting. I mm -hmm. want black educators. I want black health experts. I want the black health community right now jamming up Biden and Harris saying, mm -hmm. uh, hey, y'all going to be spending millions and millions of dollars on this, on this vaccine uh, and get out to media. Make sure black media is getting their portion. I want to make sure that whoever's going to be education secretary, those black educators uh, are, are getting their voice in as well. And so to me, black interest groups in various sectors. I want to see the black business community meeting with uh, Janet Yellen uh, and uh, Adeyomo, the brother who's, uh, who's the number two, saying, you know, we want to ensure uh, that black folks are also getting a piece of the pension funds. All, to me, the targeting, the laser-like targeting, the micro-targeting should be based upon subject matter as opposed to sort of this, you know, one group speaks for all. Absolutely. And, and oh, 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 Scott, Scott, hold on, Monique, go ahead. Exactly as you said, we don't want there to be the one Negro meeting, but that's further to my point. I don't want the one Negro person with the weight of the world on their shoulders just because they are the one that's always in the meetings. In the uh, Obama administration, Valerie Jarrett was there, Eric Holder was there, Loretta Lynch was there. We had these people in top positions who were in all the meetings that concern topics that are important to us in the meetings. And still, as you just reiterated, Roland, there were things, and Scott reiterated, 
there were things that people in the black community feel they should have pushed on more. So if we're going to be smarter this time, let's not make it about individuals and personalities only, because if we put that one Biden Negro whisperer in the room and then don't get our results, well, that's all our eggs in one basket. What we need is to ensure that the people who are not black who are in these positions have the same sensibilities. Our outreach and our demand have to be about policies, not just color. All right, folks. Before the meeting, not after the meeting. After the meeting is a complaint, before the meeting is accountability. That should be our mantra for going forward with this administration. All right, folks, let's talk about uh, what's happening in the courts today. All 50 states in the District of Columbia certified their presidential results. President-elect Joe Biden is projected to win 306 electoral college votes, while Donald Trump uh, will get 232. This announcement comes after 17 red states told the Supreme Court today they support Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's bid to file a lawsuit that could reverse Donald Trump's election defeat. Missouri, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, and Utah, and West Virginia all support Paxton's request to the Supreme Court to sue Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin over their election results. Paxton wants to block their certification of Biden's wins. The Electoral College is going to meet in five days. Uh, Monique, these people are stuck on stupid. And so, and here's the deal. This is what I keep trying to explain to folk, Monique. And, and I hope Joe Biden is really, really paying attention. All of this bullshit that the Republicans are going to return back to how they were when Trump is out. No, they are clearly, I keep telling folk, stop saying Trump's base and the Republican Party. They're the same. These people are not going to play ball. They refuse to even call Joe Biden president-elect. In fact, the Republicans, Mitch McConnell and others, would not even vote on a simple resolution to tell the American people that they're planning the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. They, they, they don't care about rules. They don't care about norms. Uh, and so all the people are saying, well, no, this is all to appease uh, the ego of Trump. No, this is who they be. This is about power, and they're showing you that. Well, but it also, though, I don't want to say what's not going to happen um, in the future. I don't know. I, I am hopeful. I have to maintain a certain reservoir of hope because there are things that we need to have happen that can't happen without some reasonableness, some goodwill in the part of the other party. But they're like a wild ass right now. You know, or, or even better, um, a stallion, a wild horse. And it's going to take a while for them to realize you're not going to be able to just roam free and do whatever your hateful tendencies want you to do anymore. There's a saddle on you. There's a bridle on you. There's a stall for you. We will keep you in the stall if you don't conduct yourself properly. It's going to There's going to be some bucking in this process before that party... Uh, figures out that it will have to play ball and before the Trumpists, who are the underbelly of that party, go back into hiding and shame and embarrassment where they actually belong. Scott, these folks are stuck on stupid. Yeah, you know, uh, the Supreme Court, in a variation of this Texas uh, uh, case, they just rejected with no opinion what Pennsylvania tried to do. 
and it's, it's essentially a repackaged case. My biggest question is, 50 states and the District of Columbia have certified the election already. They've had several recounts, they've had hand counts and what have you. And, and so um, uh, it's too late, much like the Supreme Court said, or rather the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, said these issues of challenging mail-in ballots, just as a general proposition, you should have done that a year ago, and now you're doing it now and you want to disenfranchise millions of people. That's not going to happen. But secondly, um, where does the Texas state, the state of Texas and the attorney general find standing, right, to protest the election results and the certifications in other states? Unless they're arguing some type of ongoing process and conspiracy amongst the Democratic voters and the Democratic leaders, even though the Republican leaders in several of those states have also certified the results, like in Georgia, if you will, um, and like in Utah, and like in, in Florida. I mean, you can't parse this out and say, well, this was okay, mail-in voting in these states because Trump won. It's not, he, it's not in the blue states that Biden won because um, there's no way he could win. Uh, Trump had to win. So it's okay. It's not rigged if Trump wins, but it's rigged if Biden wins. It makes no sense and the Supreme Court, or even a state court, uh, ought to be rejecting that and have rejected many of these lawsuits already. There have been 30 or 40. And so we'll just have to see. But it is a long, 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 long shot of what, what they're doing right now. Uh, but we have to understand, again, the game that they're playing, and it is a dangerous one. So let's talk about what's happening uh, in Georgia. Georgia Republicans have outlined a plan to restrict mm -hmm. mail voting for the 2020 Senate runoff in the attempt to combat voter fraud. Although to date, there's been no evidence of voter fraud that took place in the 2020 presidential election. The plan is to eliminate no excuse absentee voting to add a voter ID requirement to mail ballots for voters with an eligible excuse and eliminate drop boxes. Experts warn Trump's false claims of voter fraud by the groundwork laid the, laid the groundwork for these new rules, which could suppress eligible voters. Now, keep in mind, you also have in Cobb County where they're saying, oh, we just don't have enough people to work the polls because they're just tired. They're tired because of the recount. Stop it, y'all. They're paid positions. Joining us right now uh, to talk about this uh, is uh, Nakima Williams, of course, who is a uh, elected official in Georgia who will be, of course, sworn in in January uh, to take the place of Congressman John Lewis uh, in Congress. And so, uh, certainly looking forward to that. Uh, we also have uh, with us, I'm going to pronounce uh, Ufat, correct? CEO of the New yes. Georgia Project. All right, glad to have both of you here. So let me set this up, for, for, and I need people watching to understand, and trust me, you're not going to hear this on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, and mainstream media. 2008, Barack Obama wins North Carolina by 14,100 votes. Republicans get control in 2010 and change all the laws. They said no way. North Carolina had one of the lowest voting participation prior to 2008, and then they went up to one of the highest because folks like Reverend Barber, the NAACP, and others put in procedures to actually make voting more accessible. Republicans said, oh, hell no, we ain't doing that. Then, of course, we've seen over the last decade the clawing back, the fighting, the knockdown voter ID and racial gerrymandering and fighting the elimination of early voting sites. Republican Speaker of the House, Nakima, said in the spring 
If we allow mail-in balloting, Republicans will never win another election. This is absolute positive voter suppression by the Republican Party. And folk in Georgia better be careful because what they did in North Carolina led to a decade of hell for black folks and others. Well, Roland, you just laid it all out. I don't know what you want me to say at this point. Um, it is, I mean, it's, I'm glad to be on here with my homie and say, you didn't tell me she was going to be on with me. She could have covered all of this between the two of you, but y'all it is, um, yeah, we keep talking about, or you keep hearing about from Republicans about this voter fraud, but there is no empirical evidence at all of any voter fraud in the state of Georgia. But what we have seen cycle after cycle are Republicans trying to suppress the vote. That's what we do have factual evidence to support. And here we go again. We are, I mean, I was reading today. So now they want drop boxes to only be open during business hours. It's a drop wow. box. You want it to only be open during business hours. How much sense does that make? We have one half of the state, because we are a battleground state, let's be clear, it's going to be very tight. It is a, We're a 50-50 state, but we have half of the state who wants to expand access to the ballot, who believe that the more people involved in our democracy, the better. And we have another part of the state, like you said, a Republican Speaker of the House, who said that the more people that vote by mail, the worse they were off as Republicans. And they, unfortunately, have the majority in the state House and the state Senate. And so it's going to be it's going to be interesting come January in the general assembly. And say the, the thing that that um, is so crazy about this, they literally want to get rid of changes that they approved. It, it's insane. It's insane. I mean, again, that's why they are only contesting the results of elections and that Trump lost in, right? So, like, no one cares about the... You, you, you don't suspect voter fraud in Texas. You don't suspect voter fraud in Florida. Only in states where Trump is lost. Okay, one, we see you. Two, it is the nature of battleground state politics that the elections are determined by, one, who shows up, and two, whose votes get counted, right? And because of the work of groups like the New Georgia Project and others, we have eyes on every step of the process, like the, between the parties and the candidates and the fair fights and the New Georgia Projects and the Working Families Party, that from registration to when the votes are counted, we have injected uh, transparency into the process. And so they can't steal elections the way that they've done in the past. Um, and that is where the frustration is coming from. It is the nature of drop boxes that drop boxes for all kinds of businesses purposes, they are there for convenience outside of work, work hours. Why would you need a drop box if it was only available to voters during times where the county board of election is open? Like we are definitely descending into silly season. I understand that desperate people do desperate things. I understand that you know, the writing appears to be on the wall. I understand that they feel like they have to fight for every vote. But suppressing the vote is only going to piss people off. And folks are turning up. The energy is high. The enthusiasm is high. The resolve is high. Black folks and young people and first-time voters are saying, not today, not on my watch. Nakima, I actually saw an item the other day that said that 70,000 
folks who did not vote in the November 3rd election have requested absentee ballots, and most of them are 18 to 29 and mostly people of color. Yeah, I was reading that earlier. Um, Greg Bluesting, a um, journalist with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and, I mean, the AJC is... I, I mean, I'm sure he looked into the, the factualness of this before it was posted. But, I mean, we have groups on the ground, Roland, that have been doing deep organizing cycle after cycle. People will have you to believe that this just started in 2020 or in 2018 when Stacey Abrams won. But this has been cycle after cycle we've been building to get to this point. We've increased our work to scale. We see organizations continuing to go back into communities, trusted community messengers, encouraging people to use their voice. And then today there are some chatter on Twitter, some people from the Lincoln Project telling me that I was wrong to say that people didn't show up to vote just against Donald Trump. But this election wasn't just about Donald Trump. Then what happens when Donald Trump's not on the ballot? People are still showing up in force even without Donald Trump on the ballot, because it was not about him. This election is about people in Georgia reclaiming their power that for far too long Republicans in the state have tried to suppress. And, and and to that particular point, um, what what I'm really trying to get our folks, and I think I think we we have to continue to connect the dots because all these people who are saying, "Oh my God, the great work of of Stacey and 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 the New Voter Project and and Fair Fight," all okay, look, it don't get changed unless folk exercise the power. Correct. And that's it. That's the only way it get changes. And so people, so you can, it's sort of like I see, I see these study surveys. People are like, well, I don't believe in the politics, so I'm gonna keep protesting for change. But what the hell are you protesting? The people who are gonna change the policy are the politicians. The root word of policy and politicians is poly. They go together. You understand, yeah. Rowan? <laughs> Um, listen, wh what is happening, what we are witnessing right now is that Donald Trump won 71% um, of the white vote in Georgia and still lost. And so what that means is that in order to win a statewide victory in Georgia, you need a multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual, multigenerational progressive majority. Like, that is what exists in Georgia, and you need to turn them out. And so the politics of yesteryear, right, where there were gentlemen's agreements, uh, the idea that, you know, you waited your turn, uh, that we didn't rock the boat, that, you know, uh, we, that, that it would backroom deals, smoke filled rooms, like all of that is being challenged, right? You have, uh, again, a, a robust and resolute uh, multiracial, multiethnic base that is hiring new elected officials and firing folks. Um, and they're young. Imagine that 40% of the people who voted by mail and voted early were under the age of 39 in the state of Georgia. So when we think about like the people who were born in 2002 and 2003 and are eligible to vote for the first time, and the first time they voted, they flipped the state. The first time they voted, they got rid of a fascist would-be dictator. Um, and what does that mean for the future of Georgia elections when you understand the power of the vote? It's better than any focus group, GOTV, you must register vote, uh, register to vote rest, uh, rap. 
that Nakima or I could have come up with with our years of campaigning. Um, that, that in real time, they are able to see the power of their vote, that they are able to save their own lives and the lives of their loved ones by electing champions, people who are going to go to Washington, D.C., like Nakima, to do the people's work. Uh, Nakima, let's just talk about, first of all, we have the runoff coming up. And look, people have been asking me, hey, do you think we're not going to debate? I say, y'all, it don't matter. I said, look, this, this thing is locked in, it's baked in. This is going to be about turnout. Are y'all seeing there, are y'all seeing there in Georgia, for the both of you, and Akeem, I'll start with you, the resources being put on the ground in the field. I see all of these stories saying $250 million is being spent uh, 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 on the airways. And look, let's just be real clear. The media buyers, they make their money by placing media ads. Is the money being put on the ground to turn people out? Are folks, are folks identifying those cities, large black population that didn't turn out so well? Are they targeting those folks? Is that stuff, ha what is happening on the ground to get folks to turn out? Because early voting starts next uh, Monday uh, in Georgia, December 14th. And of course, the runoff is uh, January 5th. What are y'all both seeing on the ground from the campaigns and from uh, other groups in Georgia? So out in Santa are seeing this from two different angles right now. So it's good to have us both on. But as chairwoman of the state Democratic Party, we are investing in our county parties and they have ground games. They are out canvassing something that we were less um, eager to do during the November election because of COVID. But now we have some better practices in place so that we can have people out on the doors canvassing safely. So we have people all over the state. People will ask me, are we focused on just Metro Atlanta or where are we focused? But we are focused statewide, Roland, because that is, we are a battleground state and every vote counts, every vote matters. So we have county parties across the entire state that we have invested in and we have people out on the doors seven days a week. We're texting, we're calling, we're knocking. Yeah. Um, listen, I will say this. We definitely do not have our fair share of that $250 million. So if those of you who are who have the capacity to give, uh, I ask that you go to newgeorgiaproject.org forward slash donate. Um, on the March to the November general, we knocked on 400,000 doors. We talked to over a million and a half uh, Georgians of color having high quality uh, conversations on the doors, on phones, and on text messages. Uh, I mean, People probably know New Georgia Project. We're probably best known for our large-scale voter registration effort. So we've helped expand the electorate by adding 500,000 Georgians of color and young people to Georgia's voter rolls. That's not a fluke. And again, the, that investment, that labor, that work is going to pay off for future elections. And we're very excited about that. Um, and so we are planned to do that on the March to uh, January 5th. We plan we plan to knock on another million doors. We plan to make five million phone calls. We plan to make the same number of text messages to have high quality conversations with Georgia voters about things that matter. Um, we see elections as opportunities to test our power and to flex the power that we are building in between elections. Um, and that work continues. And so if you are giving money to the campaigns, if you're giving money to the party, I ask that if you have an additional capacity to give, that you match that contribution.
conversation with a grassroots organization that's really out here uh, building power in our communities that is designed to last beyond one election cycle. So what? We'll, we'll, so we'll do this here. So I actually were, I was in uh, I was in Georgia Thursday through Tuesday. Came back. I'm back in D.C. I'll be back on the ground uh, on Monday. Uh, having decided if I'm going to be there for three or four days, or we're going to stay for a week. We'll we'll figure all that out. Uh, and so uh, if y'all could let me. So so one of the things that we want to know. Uh, again, exactly what's going on. So if there are rallies, if there are town halls, uh, not just in Atlanta, anywhere in the state, we got the ability to drive all, all around. Uh, and also what we're working on is also broadcasting this show from different places. And so all you got to do is just uh, is just hit me direct. Uh, I don't do gatekeepers uh, because we want to be able to talk about what's happening on the ground uh, and so we'll do, so, and, and you're absolutely right, you're 100% right uh, in, say, for the people who don't quite understand politics, they give money to the campaigns, but look, a lot of times the campaigns really aren't in control of those dollars, it's a very few people. And so, if you look at the bottom of our screen here, you, if you don't have the signal up, uh, so what we did uh, for today's show, we are highlighting uh, the work of Black Voters Matter and the National Coalition of Black Civic Participation. We're sort of rotating that banner. Uh, and again, since I own the show, I ain't got to ask nobody. So what we'll do is tomorrow, uh, we'll actually have, for the banner that will stay on for the whole show, uh, we'll have uh, the New Georgia Voter Project, we'll have that as the banner and the website so if people want to support, uh, they can can actually do that, which is why I keep arguing you got to have black media because, again, mainstream media ain't going to do that because, again, they don't call those shots. So that's why we're doing that. So uh, love the work that y'all are doing. Thank you so very much. Uh, and we're going to keep pushing the information out. And the last thing here, and I keep telling the people this here, the reason these two races are important, because if Osof and Warnock wins, it's a 50-50 tie, then you can actually pass the John Lewis voter bill that can yep. actually solve a lot of these issues. And so for the people out there who are like, man, I don't know, I'm going to vote for the brother, but I ain't really feeling Osof, you need both. Yep. If Warnock wins, Osof loses, it's 51-49. You ain't winning. You got to win both. That's how the George Floyd Justice Act gets passed as well. And so we got to connect the dots with our folks, so we'll certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Roland. Happy birthday. All right, thank you very much. All right, folks, got to go to commercial break. We come back, we're going to talk about polling data what are young voters in Georgia saying they want to see? That is next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. You know, it's a lot of people did a lot of things to vote. It wasn't just something that was handed over. You know how many of your ancestors, so when people talk to me about how black they are in their heart, I'm like, but you don't do nothing to honor the ancestors for the things that they put in front of you. They, it's, it's blood on those votes. You had, his people died and did all type of things in order for you and further in, in future generations to be able to vote and you take it for granted as it don't mean nothing. I think that most people just not informed enough on what to vote about and who to vote for. It's like you look on this, you look on a ballot, you'll see proposition one through 10. You don't know what any of the propositions are. Nobody educated you on Prop 1, how's it going to directly affect your community? How's it going to directly affect elderly? How's it going to directly affect the future? How do you not know and you vote for something blind? Or you don't vote for something blind? 
or you see a name, you have no clue who this person is. And you just, ah, oh, it's all Democrat. I'ma vote for everybody on the Democratic line. Like, sometimes we be voting for people who ain't got no backbone. I still, I still think in my mind, who are the people that we voted for that we put in office that chose to accept that they couldn't nominate a Supreme Court justice? They accepted that. The Republicans told them they couldn't do it because it's a lame duck president. What you mean? Right. What do you mean? Someone sent the message that I didn't smile the whole time I was speaking. They're like, that's so unusual. Not to see you smile. You look worried. <laughs> I'm just being serious, guys. <laughs> My name is Linda Thomas Greenfield. I have been nominated to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. The United States is a beacon of hope for many people around the world. That light dimmed over the past four years. The light didn't go out completely, but we were not there when people needed us. You cannot bring about global change alone. You need your allies, you need your partners, you need your friends. During my 35-year career, I am most proud of the fact that I have uh, developed relationships with people. You develop uh, relationships by having people over to your home and teaching them how to make a famous American Louisiana dish, gumbo, and that's how I came up with gumbo diplomacy. As an African-American uh, growing up in the segregated South, my presence will represent something to a large number of people across the United States. I'm getting messages from people in Louisiana who are so extraordinarily proud that a girl from the segregated South actually achieved a position of this importance in the cabinet. Multilateralism is back. Diplomacy is back. Democracy is back. America is back. You are leading the way for the rest of this state. And we believe that this state is on the verge of shocking the entire country. Senate is hinging on one seat, and there's only one race left. That's right. This will literally be the epicenter of the of the entire country, right? So we we ready. Music has an ability to be able to help us feel connected, and that's because music has a way of speaking to the spirit, and it is the spirit we're going to change this country with. It is going to be standing in a space of our power and in the fullness of our spirit of love and the spirit of humanity. That is what's going to transform America. 
All right, and we certainly thank Black Voters Matter for being a partner with us here at Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, they're doing an admirable job, and so certainly a shout-out to Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright. Folks, a recent exit poll shows that black voters were responsible for the Biden-Harris margin of victory in cities like Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta, and Milwaukee. It also shows why we voted and why we didn't. There's clearly a generational divide that Democrats need to bridge to win in Georgia and take back the Senate. Joining me with more key facts on this is Terrence Woodbury. He is the founding partner of uh, Hit Strategies, the polling company responsible for this report. And of course, also my panel is A. Scott Bolden, Monique Presley, and joining us is Robert Patillo with the Rainbow Push Peach Tree Street Project there in uh, uh, Georgia. All right, um, Terrence, let's uh, get right to it. Exactly what uh, is your data showing? We, we previously had talked about this here, uh, where young voters do not identify as Democrats to the same extent as older voters. How is that? So does that mean, though, that they are listing more and being appealed more by the Republican Party? Or are they simply saying, I'm not self-identifying, which means you're going to have to work a lot harder to get me to vote for you? What's up, Roland? Thanks for having me, and uh, and I'm glad to be here with your fantastic, with a lot of friends on this panel, and even uh, some some really good friends on your previous panel. We're doing quite a bit of work with NSA and with Nakima in Georgia, um, and 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 have been in conducting polls and focus groups on behalf of both of their organizations, both before the runoff and 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 since uh, and since election day. And what we're seeing is quite clear. One is that black voters are extremely, extremely engaged um, in, in this election. Ninety one percent of black voters say that, that they care a great deal about who wins this election. That number is consistent even across uh, infrequent black voters and first time black voters. And Roland, just in case I didn't actually believe some of this data, uh, I, I had to go sit in focus groups with first time and infrequent black voters and ask them uh, first uh, wondering if I even if, if they even knew that there was a runoff. They are uh, engaged. They know that there's a runoff on a scale of zero to 10. They are absolutely voting. They're fr- I mean, it's it is remarkable just how engaged they are. That said, there is a serious gender and generational divide um, amongst black voters that we really have to lean into uh, and start correcting it first in Georgia in order for, for both Warnock and Ossoff to win. But that were, but as a party, Democrats are going to have to start correcting that divide um, for to, to, to be successful in future elections. And what is that divide? So uh, how do they correct it? Absolutely, Roland. So, you know, we, we spend quite a bit of time talking about the gender divide over this election. A lot of folks looking at black men, anticipating what black men would do in this election. We didn't spend quite as much time looking at the generational divide. But what we see is that, you know, uh, amongst black men and amongst younger black voters, they are about uh, 10% less likely, sorry, 9% less likely to identify as Democrats. That also made them 9% less likely to support Democrats, uh, less likely to support Biden, but also less likely to support Democrats down ballot. Now, let me tell you why that's so important, Roland. You know, uh, David Perdue got 17% of black men's votes in Georgia. Donald Trump got 19% of black men's, in, black men's votes in Georgia. And so we saw a bump of support for Perdue because when we look back at what David Perdue got, in, got, got amongst black men six years ago when he was on the ballot, he got 7% of black men's votes. From 7% to 17%, 
of black men's votes. That is the difference, Roland, of 83,000 votes. I am getting sick and tired of Democrats, of, of progressives, of politicals in this party telling me that, I, that we spend too much time on these marginal differences, on three or 4% differences amongst black men. 7% six years ago, 17% now, that marginal difference, Roland, is the re? It was almost was almost a, a, a enough to to push to push uh, David Perdue into back into the Senate. Eighty three thousand votes. This is not marginal. This is the margin of difference in states that are that are being decided at lays at their margins. Uh, very interesting point there, and I, I want to play this here. Uh, Andrew Gillum posted this. Uh, this was a uh, um, podcast, and Terrence, I want to get your thoughts on this, and I'm going to go in the order of Robert, Scott, then uh, then Monique on this one. Uh, this is He had a conversation with Bakari Sellers, uh, and this is what Bakari had to say about that, speaking directly to what you're talking about, which is that generational divide, but even among the generational divide, the gender divide. Listen to this. Well, first of all, black men are treated as invisible by the Democratic Party, period. And that's been an indictment of our party for a long period of time until election season, where we scramble and try to figure out how we can get Charlemagne and Andrew and Bakari to do town halls with black men and barbershops to get them to come out and vote. Right. We do that every we'll be they'll be calling us again in August of, of 2022, trying to figure out how we're going to beat Marco Rubio in Florida by getting black men to the polls. I mean, you see these like articles that they come out about the, the white women who ran the campaign. That's great. Um, we see the articles about black women being the backbone of the Democratic Party. That's great. All of these things are true. But what you don't see are the articles about the Sterling K. Browns or the Don Cheadles or the John Legends or the, the Jeffrey Wrights who use their platform to push. You don't see the articles about the um, Kamayo Marshalls or the uh, or the Vince Evans um, who worked on the campaign, who helped push this campaign forward. Right. You don't see the articles about the Roland Martins or whomever else who utilized their media perch just to make sure that there was a clear frame and vision around what the Biden candidacy would be. I pick up on that. Then I'm going to go to Robert, Scott, then Monique. You know, I think that's exactly right. You know, uh, <clears throat> a part of the a, a part of uh, Donald Trump's appeal to black men um, and, Repub and, and Republicans more broadly uh, is it, it, it is the it is the the it, it is it is a leaning into the cynicism that that's many black men feel towards Democrats. And this is a quote uh, that I heard from a black man in Florida, uh, just just in focus groups over this election, who said, you know, my hood didn't get any better under Obama and ain't got no worse under Trump. So tell me what any of these presidents got to do with me for those closest to the pain. Our policies are not reaching them. And, and the ways in which our policies impact their lives are not being communicated to them. So that allows for Donald Trump to exploit that cynicism, exploit that pain, and create this false equivalency that, that, that they're all neglecting you. So at least, uh, at, at least give me a shot. What do you got to lose? And then the last thing I'll say here is, you, you know, uh, one thing that Democrats have to lean into is representation in this party. You, uh, not only Raphael Warnock, but but over the course of this election cycle, the four brothers that we had running for U.S. Senate in the South, that's a story that folks in Milwaukee, that black men in Milwaukee needed to hear. That's a story that black men in, in Philadelphia needed to hear. They need to know 
that there are people like Hakeem Jeffries um, and, 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 and Antonio Delgado, young black brothers taking leadership in this party to push an agenda um, that, that, that fights for people like them. And it's happening in the party. But we got to start spending money, communicating it, targeting these voters and doing so not uh, 90 day, 30 days before Election Day, but to start doing it right now and, 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 and showing them how they're represented. You're there uh, in Georgia. Uh, you heard this conversation, but also the previous one when I talked about uh, what's happening on the ground. Uh, your thought of your thoughts about the, again this this generational uh, shift, where older voters far more likely to identify as Democrats compared to younger African Americans. Robert, you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. I, I hear it's hard to know that was uh, directed my way. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're first. Yeah. Well, part, part of the, the issue is that party identification is just simply not as significant now as it was in generations past. Uh, what does it mean to be a Republican? What does it mean to be a Democrat? Um, younger voters are more interested in direct policy positions, bold, exciting, uh, energetic policy positions. It's not enough to simply roll out the brand anymore. Um, brand names are now fungible. Um, you have to roll out the policy positions that they believe in. And Democrats, in large part, have been kind of lukewarm to embrace much of what Bernie Sanders was campaigning on, much of what Elizabeth Warren was campaigning on, um, much of what, what Reverend Jackson campaigned on in 84 and 88. And as long as we still have this myth in the party, this fantasy in the party, that you're going to get those Reagan Democrats back, you're going to get those old truck drivers and the Rust Belt, and they're going to come back to the party, so don't say anything or do anything too scary that might scare them off, uh, you're going to continue to have... Uh, low turnout among African-American men and among millennials and Gen Zers, because simply put, they are only worried about what's going to happen to them, what's going to affect their bottom lines, uh, what's going to deal with student loans, what's going to deal with housing, what's going to do with jobs in the economy. And just having a brand name is not going to be enough. So until the party's willing to confront the realities of the demographic shift in America, those uh, those people wearing MAGA hats are not coming back to the Democratic Party. Give up on them and really campaign and push a bold progressive agenda that addresses the needs of the people people who actually turn out for you. That's how you get more young people, and that's how you get more black men interested in voting for the party. Scott? Yeah, you know, um, Roland, Roland, I struggle with this because I, I hear the data, and I do think, as Bakari says, that black men have been invisible to the Democratic Party. They've been invisible to the Republican Party, too. That black female or black women activism and black people, 90% of them voting for the Democratic Party, does not necessarily mean black men. That 7 to 10% that, that if you knew Donald Trump, if you were informed as a black man and you voted or did not vote, then you got to be dumb as a doorknob to vote for Donald Trump, if you will. So it's more than messaging. It's getting them interested in the policy and exposing black men clearly as a result of this data, exposing them to and informing them and, and educating them so that this whole choice or this despondence in regard to their plight in life is not solely controlled by Democrats or Republicans or even an election, but that, but that to have a chance at a better life, to improve their quality of life, that voting and politics matter. I also think that if the DNC isn't highlighting black men who are elected officials, young and older ones, then we certainly need to be doing this because as a result of the data, 
that tells us and dictates that we need to be doing more. And not every two years or every four years, how do we get black men to vote for Democrats? Because those numbers, I bet you, and maybe it's a question for your guests, those numbers, if we don't do anything about it, are only going to increase and expand. And we don't have a third party or African-American political party for those, those disenfranchised black male voters to go to. And maybe their vote for Donald Trump is a protest vote for their lack of recognition or their lack of economic prosperity or their lack of ability to matriculate in any successful manner in this country. Uh, Terrence answered what uh, Scott said, then I'm going to Monique. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he, he's absolutely right. You know, th this is this is a uh, an inflection point for Democrats because uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the one the one place I will push back is that black men are, are are also invisible to Republicans because that's exactly what Donald Trump just 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 uh, mm -hmm. changed the playbook on us. Uh, mm -hmm. I think once we get this final FEC report, we're going to see that Donald Trump spent upwards of a hundred million dollars pursuing these these voters and when people ask me why are black men considering voting for donald trump or why did black men consider voting for donald trump i told them the same answer because he spoke to them he spent yeah. money talking to them every single day in the palms of their hands he targeted them with people that look like them talking about things that matter to them um and 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 look I, look i i think i think half of the stuff he put in the palms of their hands were lies uh, and, right. and and uh, hyperbole, but but he, but he, but 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 it was only effective because uh, it was it was it was being listened to in a, in a vacuum. Money. But if that's who's speaking to you, and ain't nobody else speaking to you, then you're more likely than less likely to vote for that person or to believe what you're hearing gotcha. from even Donald Trump. Monique, the, the the point about in terms of young voters. I mean, look, the reality is is here. As each year progresses, the next generation is the one uh, who you're going to have to be appealing to. Uh, and so the uh, Democratic Party, they are going to have to ha get a better handle on how to appeal to young voters. Look, you can try to have as much messages as you can to older voters. And we also know, though, who turns out the most. But at the end of the day, you have to convert people to voters, which means you got to figure out what's going to push their buttons. Sure. But... As I've said before uh, on your show, Rowan, and elsewhere, we talk about the Democratic Party and what the Democratic Party should do, some amorphous, um, intangible by way of an organization that is not made up of real people, such as me. I'm a member of the Democratic Party. I understand that there's the DNC and that there's money allocation and there's campaign money, and there are all of these other ways that money can be spent important to communities. But let me just have a public conversation and share what I've already shared with you ad nauseum privately. I agree with Bakari uh, about what he said, but I don't think he finished the thought. Because if you don't have resolution, if you don't have solutions that each person can do, and if you don't call out who, who needs to do those things? Okay, if you feel like you're being ignored by the Democratic Party, well, hello, black men. I'm the only black woman on this call, on, on this show right now. So you and you and you and you. The responsibility for advocating on behalf of black men to the Democratic Party so that the Democratic Party then devotes the right amount of time, energy, resources, um, in, into growing and re-educating 
or educating for the first time black men about why it's important and what the differences are between the parties and how this matters to them. I mean, when Bakari said, sure, there are all these articles being written about black women being the base of the Democratic Party. Well, that didn't happen by accident. That's black woman advocacy. Years worth of united effort to improve our standing and get what we are due. And so if you look at from the civil rights movement forward, where black women were not just the base of the Democratic Party, but the base of the civil rights movement, we are the workers. So if we turn and start working for ourselves, then black men have to decide and I don't want no hate mail because I love y'all. I'm, I'm raising black men. You know, my daddy's a black man. Come on. What I'm saying is we can't just be the work mules because now we have to work for ourselves and advocate for ourselves. So black men now who are in leadership can't just be visionaries. They can't just be the head of something that women are running. They have to build an infrastructure such that they advocate for themselves because that's the only way. If articles need to be written about what John Legend did, okay, Scott, write that article. If, if articles need to be written so, so that y'all don't get lost uh, during, during the what we call off election years, which there's no such thing, then where is your essence? You know, is it black enterprise? Uh, where are the gaps going to be filled? Who has the contacts other than Roland Martin, the only black man doing media for black people every single day of the week? And, and who's going to advocate so that these things get done? Because time out for talking about it. The, the, the house is on fire. What are we going to do? Well, uh, just to kind of answer that, I, I think part of the issue is that often, the uh, very often the agenda items for African-American men do not match up very cleanly with the uh, agenda items for the Democratic Party. And so when it comes to that political science question, you know, first day of political science class, politics is the question of who gets what when, uh, other groups are often put ahead of that. And we're told to sit back, wait for the next election, be quiet. All you have to do is look at the Leffler versus Warnock debate on uh, uh, from this week, where as an African-American man, you can't raise your voice at a blonde haired, blue eyed white woman. You cannot yell. You cannot call her a liar. You have to have this almost Jedi-like demeanor uh, whenever you're dealing with political issues. So until we're um, until we're able to kind of unleash and speak honestly, frankly, uh, in mixed crowds where we're not weighing our, our our political interests against, you know, well, we have to make sure we get the suburban soccer moms. We have to make sure that we don't scare off um, the college-educated uh, liberals from the uh, ex, uh, from the suburbs. Then we can start actually having policy positions. But as long as we're muted and neutered in these conversations, it's very difficult to put forward the positions that you're discussing. But Terrence, uh, what Monique is yeah. saying is, no, no, see, I, I, I got to disagree with you on that one. Robert, I think what Monique is saying, if you are not organized to make those demands, ain't nobody going to do it. And Terrence, I, I, I'll be honest with you, that that was one, we, we talked a lot during this election. And, and I'm going to say specifically, specifically for black men and then specifically for young black voters, uh, we're really combining black men and black women in that one. And that is if you don't self-organize to then make demands on folk, then you're not going to be able to get it. I've been saying the same thing, Terrence, to black media. You can't keep saying we don't get our fair share if you're unwilling to come together as a collective to then go in as a collective by saying, now, nah, y'all ain't going to give us 10 cents on the dollar. Y'all going to give us that whole dollar. 
Now, we, yeah. we might end up with 50, 60, or 70, but we got that. So the deal is, black men out there, and, and I put this out there, Tans, and Scott, you were on this show, and it ain't happened for a lot of, for a lot of different people. Black women have been meeting every single Sunday night. I know a bunch of them. Monique, she on that call. I know a whole bunch of them. Every damn Sunday night. For how long y'all been meeting, Monique? Three months? Four months? Four. Four months? Four months. Terrence, I don't know. I do not know. And I would know of a group of black men who are not in a one particular group. I'm talking about black men from different backgrounds all around the country who have a regular weekly call where they are talking policy, where they raising money, where they giving marching orders. And so if we gonna address the issue of what's happening with Dems and black men, you can't ask somebody to do something that you are not making a demand and it can't be singular. It has to be a collective action, Terrence. No, that's that's right, Roland. Look, but but the truth is, man, I, 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 I... I, I am I am critical of these gender gaps and these generational gaps, but I'm also very, very supportive of the work that I know brothers have been doing. And I, I, I just, you know, black Greek letter organizations are not going to let you say that, that that black men ain't doing nothing. No, 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 no. Black, See, no, no, you missed what I said. You missed what I said. Follow me here. Follow me here. Listen real clearly. I'm not on every car, Roland. I don't know what... No, 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 no. Follow, follow me here. Follow me here. And, and, so the group that Monique is a part of, this I'm ain't... Very no. I'm very familiar with with, uh, with, with, with one with black women. Right, and what I'm saying is, that ain't... You can be in a sorority or not. You can be in a boule or not. You can be in a lynx or not. You can be independent. You can be whatever. What I'm saying is... Part of the problem here is that black male groups are operating in silos. They're not operating as a collective to make those demands. So if I, that's I, what I'm saying. I, I just think that's debatable, Roland. I think that's debatable. Show me the proof. I think it, listen, listen. Uh, no, no one doubts the impact that black churches had on, 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 on these elections. Well, 90% of the pastors of those black churches are men. But, mean, no, 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 no. But, the, we, but those were black we just, churches we just, operating as a collective. Right, right. But we, we just cannot dismiss the contribution I, 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 that no, black no, no, men no, 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 are I, having on democratic politics. I'm not dismissing. But what I am saying is, if you're going to argue that there has to be a laser-like focus targeted effort on this constituency, there has to be a group that's making the argument. If you're in the black church, you're making the black church argument. If you are in, if you're black women, you're making the black women argument. So there has to be a group that's making the specifics, no, no, specifically black men, messaging to black men, targeting to black men, dollars to black men. It, Absolutely. Can't, it can't be where, oh, I got five priorities and hell, these are the other four and I might get you the brothers later. So what Monique is saying is, brothers, organize your ass. Stop talking. I mean, Full I, stop. I, 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 I do know I do know multiple, multiple black uh, uh, grassroots organizations led by black men. Many of Mondale has been on your show. A couple of others um, have, have, have been here to talk to you about the work they're doing. But it, but beyond just or and we do have to to better organize. But there's two points I want to make. One is that we cannot blame the consumer for not for not buying the product. Right. This is like Democrats are selling Pepsi here. You know, you can't you can't blame your consumer for not uh, for not going out and better organizing Pepsi into their community. 
That's not the consumer's job. No. It is Pepsi's oh. job to get into that, to get into the community, to understand how to position their product in a community of consumers if they want that consumer to Hold buy up. their product. But here's the deal. When Coca-Cola came out with New Coke, what did consumers say? This shit nasty. <laughs> and they said, we're going back to old Coke. And all I'm saying, all I'm saying though, is Frederick Douglass has already told us what we gotta do. Power concedes. Nothing without a demand, never have, never will. You must agitate, agitate, agitate. I'm only arguing that if you do not do it as a collective, if alphas come to the table, without, and then kappas come to the table, and then omega, if you come into the table individually, I can pick you off. But when you come in as a collective, and I not got to deal with all y'all, Whole different conversation, and that's all I'm saying. Terrence Woodbury, I appreciate it, man. Uh, thank you so very much uh, for joining us. Uh, any new data, be sure to let us know. We'll have you back on. Absolutely, Roland. Talk to you soon. All right, then, folks. So this whole idea we talk about, again, collective, how do we begin to move the needle? It also applies to what's happening with COVID-19. We're seeing what the numbers look like. We're seeing how black people are being greatly impacted by COVID-19. We're seeing now this whole discussion around the vaccine and what's being put out there. And are black people going to be talking to take, taking the vaccine? We can go on and on and on with that. Uh, the right now, 15.2 15 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States. 286,000 people have died as a result of it. We're now seeing new orders coming down in states, North Carolina and California and others uh, trying to stem the flow of what's going on. Uh, now you have Dr. Anthony Fauci urging confidence in coronavirus vaccines during a conversation with leaders of a coalition of black doctors, faith leaders, and academics. Black Americans are nearly three times more likely to die from the virus than their white counterparts, but because of a long history of mistrust, studies suggest that black Americans are less likely to get vaccinated than other ethnic groups. Joining us right now is Tiffany Tate. She's executive director of the Maryland Partnership for Prevention. But also what Tiffany is doing is she's working on something that could be of great benefit to HBCUs. So, uh, Tiffany, let's talk about that again. You just heard me talking about the collective and how that matters. Speak to that when it comes to what you want to do with HBCUs and black folks when it comes to COVID. Well, thank you first. First, let me just say thank you for having me on the show. Um, this issue is extremely um, personal for me today. I, I lost a cousin to COVID just this morning. Mm, so sorry to I hear. Have, Condolences. Thank you. I've been committed to public health and committed to this fight against COVID since the beginning. And now to have it hit so close to home, I'm, I'm really taking all of what I'm saying to heart. Um, what I'd like to do, even before this happened, I wanted to make available our technology to HBCUs because in order to be a significant, to play a significant role in this response, we need institutions in our community to be advocates of the vaccine, to be advocates of promoting health in general. And in order to do that, you need the tools and resources to do that. So we have created technology that's been in use for over four years and now is being used by more than 20 states and municipalities in this country to be able to alert people that the vaccine is available, to allow them to select an appointment wherever they'd like to go, wherever's convenient, to consent to the vaccine by providing their demographic information, information about health screening questions so that we know whether or not they're eligible for the vaccine, and then consenting to it and going and getting vaccinated and then having that information electronically transferred to systems that are administered by government agencies so that we can collect data on vaccinations and making sure that everybody is protected. 
this technology does not come cheap, but we want to make it available to the HBCUs because many don't have resources to buy this type of technology to be able to get in the game. And far too often, historical providers in our community have been excluded from participating in these types of important efforts because they don't have the resources. So by making this available for free to HBCUs, that should be allowed, that should be a first step or another step in allowing them to have a really critical role um, in this pandemic response. When we talk about the technology, so just walk for exactly uh, what is it uh, that you're okay. providing to the HBCUs? Okay, so this, the, there's two systems. One is called PrepMod. And so what PrepMod does, it has two pieces. The first piece is something that is accessed by the consumer, by the public. So they'll go to a website, they'll type in their address, and they'll search for a location where there are uh, vaccines are being available, made available. So I go in, I type in my address, I say that I want to go somewhere within 10 mile radius of my home, and the system generates all the locations in that area where someone can seek a, seek a COVID vaccination. Once I select that vaccination, it takes me to a consent form. And in order to get a vaccination, you have to consent for the services. So typically that entails going to a location, filling out papers, having clipboards and pens and all of these things and, and not knowing um, and, and not being able to alert people in advance that you're coming. And that often results in long lines, very long lines. And when in these age of where we need to social distance, we can't afford to have hundreds of people waiting. And in inclement weather, we can't afford to have people standing in really long lines outdoors. And so what this technology allows people to do is that they can register in advance, select an appointment, uh, whoever's providing that service knows that they're coming, and so they don't have to stand in a long line. They don't have to risk their health by being too close, uh, too closely spaced to someone. And they just show up. They get vaccinated. That information, basically with two clicks, gets sent to um, a state database so that we can register them, and they'll have always have record of their vaccination. And that's what we'd like to make available to the HBCUs if they want to have uh, clinics where they're vaccinating their students or vaccinating their faculty they can use this software to be able to register them. It allows you to plan. You know how many people are going to be uh, needed to, to administer the vaccine. You know how much space you need to administer the vaccine. You know how much vaccine to order because people have alerted us in advance that they're coming. Far too often in public health, we just put a you know out a call and say, come one, come all, and we don't know if we're going to have enough vaccine or enough staff or enough space so this allows us to plan and it plays a key role in being able to respond. One of the key things about getting this vaccine is that you have to report that you've given it to somebody. And if you don't have a system that's connected to a state immunization registry or the federal government's registry, then you can't participate as a provider because it is required that you have to account for the vaccine that you're administering. And for HBCUs and any other institution that's financially strapped, for them to be able to go and find hundreds of thousands of dollars for a system that they may or may not use for extended periods of time, it's just not a feasible undertaking for them. So we'd like to remove that barrier. We also are going to be providing technical assistance to these institutions so we can help them to understand just how they can use the software and couple that with other lessons that we've learned in our decades of having mobile clinics and clinic clinics based in the community. We'd like to be able to support them and help them and guide them in holding these mass vaccination clinics. And it's our vision that not only will they stop at their students and faculty, but they'll reach outside the walls into the community and invite community members to come and be vaccinated 
But first, to learn about the vaccine, because there's a lot of distrust, as people have been talking about, in these communities that are underserved and communities of color. And so in, before we can say, hey, come and take a vaccine, we have to explain to them, their, address some of their concerns. And there are a lot of concerns and fears that people have. They're valid because of our history in this country and our experiences and with some of the medical establishment. So we need to first educate people and then make the vaccine available to them. And on that particular point, we talk about education. This is where, and again, um, I've long said this here, you cannot have these folks who are in charge of messaging, frankly, talking to white folks. You gotta have black experts talking to black media platforms, walking people through. One of the reasons why, uh, we look, when, when COVID hit, we had black experts on this show, black doctors, black ER physicians, black scientists from HBCUs, who were talking about this, where black folks said, I can trust that person and what I'm hearing. That also has to happen. I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, you know, not only have we not reached out to black people, but we haven't reached out to people at all. There's been very little uh, communications and promotion and campaigns about what to expect. So we're hearing from the news media. So people like you are bringing on experts and they're saying, well, you know, you might feel a little sick after you get the vaccine. Well, that's important information that needs to be communicated in every media channel. So it should be on the radio, billboards, bus ads, television. We need people to know what to expect because if people already are a little skeptical and leery of the vaccine and then their neighbor goes and gets the vaccination, gets a vaccination and then they're sick for three days. And that just can perpetuate a, a lot of misconceptions and misperceptions about the vaccine that we really can avoid through an educational campaign. So we have to have a very compassionate and thoughtful strategic approach to engage the black community in this effort. It really disturbs me you know, especially because I lost someone close to me this morning, um, that there are so many people who are hesitant about this vaccine. And I think that we've known this for a while. We know that in general, sometimes the African-American community is hesitant about um, vaccines. And so we have to start now educating them. African-Americans are disproportionately affected by this vaccine, excuse me, by this disease. We're also disproportionately affected by the quarantine and having to be essential workers still going to work and being exposed, continuously exposed to the virus. And so when you think about this population that's out there, I'm fortunate enough to be able to work from home. I'm not taking public transportation anywhere. But if you think about some of these communities where they have to rely on public transportation, where they're working these essential jobs, where they're exposed on a daily basis, and they're not protected and they're not planning to be protected. So not only have they been infect, affected, but now they're continuing to put their, themselves at harm when other people will have taken advantage of the vaccine and African-American communities are still left unprotected because we haven't done an effective job at proactively educating them, letting folks and our people know now what to expect why it's important that we have already been socially and medically and economically disadvantaged disproportionately. We cannot continue this. This has to stop. All right, then. Well, look, we certainly appreciate the work that you do. Uh, if there are HBCUs and others out there who want to actually uh, reach out to you for the technology you're talking about, how do they do so? They can go to our website. It's uh, multi-state P and then the number four P excuse me, then for four and then p.com. So multistateP4p.com. 
they can go to our website, they can complete a contact form and we'd be happy to reach back out to them. And also um, they can give us a call at 410-902-4677. All right, Tiffany and Tate, we surely appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, folks, earlier in the show, we, we talked about uh, Joe Biden formally introducing retired General Lloyd Austin, four-star general, as his nominee to lead the Pentagon at an in-person event. If confirmed, uh, Austin would make history becoming the first black secretary of defense. This is what Austin had to say at today's announcement. Mr. President-elect and Madam Vice President-elect Harris, thank you for your trust and your confidence and for the opportunity to serve as a 28th Secretary of Defense. And if confirmed by the United States Senate, it will be my sincere honor and privilege to return to the department and to lead our great service members and civilians in accomplishing the mission of ensuring our nation's security. You know, back in 1877, a young man from the small town of Thomasville, Georgia, Henry Ossian Flipper, became the first African-American to graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point. And after his commissioning, he was assigned to one of the Army's all-black regiments. And he became the first non-white officer to lead the Buffalo Soldiers of the 10th Cavalry. And so fast forward to today, nearly 150 years later, another native son of Thomasville, Georgia, stands before you as the Secretary of Defense designate. Now many people have paved the way for me and countless others over the years to include Henry O. Flipper. And I am supremely grateful to all of them for their courage, for their determination, and for the, for the example that they set throughout. And they include the Tuskegee Airmen, and the Montford Point Marines, and many others. And throughout, throughout my career, I've also been incredibly fortunate to benefit from the support and the mentorship of exceptional leaders like General Colin Powell and Admiral Mike Mullen and General Johnny Wilson and my old platoon sergeant who you heard the president-elect just talk about. You know, I was a brand new second lieutenant and Sergeant First Class Fox Ballard took me in and taught me the way of the world. So I owe him and many others a great deal. And as Sir Isaac Newton famously said, if I have seen a little further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. I've been very fortunate to have the love and support of my family as well. My mother and father, who was a postal worker who, along with a number of my uncles and other relatives, spent time in the military and that inspired my own desire to serve. I've also enjoyed the strong support of my brother and four older sisters. Four older sisters. And most importantly, 
most importantly, my bride, Charlene, who, who I've been truly lucky to have by my side all these years, and I am so grateful for her enduring love and for her support. You know, I spent much of my military career tackling tough issues and formidable adversaries in challenging parts of the world. And President-elect Biden, as you mentioned, we've worked closely together on some tough issues. And we've gotten to know each other under some intense and high-pressure situations. And, sir, you can expect that as Secretary of Defense that I will give you the same direct and unvarnished counsel that I did back then. I understand the important role of the Department of Defense and the role that it plays in maintaining stability and deterring aggression and defending and supporting critical alliances around the world, including in the Asia-Pacific, in Europe, and around the world. And I fervently believe that, as you've said before, sir, that America is strongest when it works with its allies. And over the years, I've worked hand-in-hand -hand with our diplomatic colleagues and partners around the globe and witnessed firsthand what we're able to accomplish together. And so if confirmed, I look forward to resuming this important work. My career has taught me something else equally fundamental to who we are as a nation. When I concluded my military service four years ago, I hung up my uniform for the last time and went from being General Lloyd Austin to Lloyd Austin. It is an important distinction and one that I make with utmost seriousness and sincerity. And so I come to this role, this new role, as a, as a civilian leader with military experience, to be sure, but also with a deep appreciation and reverence for the prevailing wisdom of civilian control of our military. I recognize that being a member of the President's Cabinet requires a different perspective and unique responsibilities from a career in uniform. And I intend to keep this at the forefront of my mind. And I look forward to surrounding myself with experienced, capable civilian appointees and career civil servants who will enable healthy civil-military relations grounded in meaningful civilian oversight. As Secretary of Defense, my priority will always, always be the men and women, military and civilian, who make up the department and their families. And I've seen what they're capable of. Great Americans like your son, sir, Bo, and also our future First Lady, Dr. Biden, and her tireless work for military families. As the President-elect said, Bo was one of the military lawyers on my staff in Iraq. And we stayed in touch and saw each other a few times after he returned home. 
And as you too can attest, Madam Vice President-elect, Bo was a very special person and a true patriot and a good friend to all who knew him. Over the past four decades, I've witnessed our service members and civilians' selflessness and patriotism and the extraordinary lengths that they will go to in support of the mission and in support of one another. And I could not be more proud of them and their families. And if confirmed, it will be the honor of my lifetime to lead them again with honor and integrity. Thank you again, Mr. President-elect and Madam Vice President-elect for this opportunity and for your trust and confidence in me. May God bless and keep safe all those currently serving in harm's way and may God continue to bless the United States of America. Thank you. Robert Patillo, got to ask you first, there are some Democrats who are saying that Lloyd Austin should not be granted uh, this waiver uh, by the Senate to serve as Secretary of Defense. Uh, it requires that former military folks wait seven years after their retirement. He's only been retired four years. A waiver was granted when James uh, General Mattis uh, was chosen by Donald Trump. Uh, should Democrats grant that waiver should, or should they uh, refuse to do so? What would that say if they actually torpedo the first black Secretary of Defense? Well, I, I think it's less so about, and this sounds funny coming from me, but I think it's less so about race and more so about policy. That if you're a pan-Africanist, you want to make sure that you, it's more important not just to have the first African-American uh, Secretary of Defense, but to have the first African-American Secretary of Defense, uh, Defense who was actually interested in reducing war and militarism across the black and brown world. You know, if you're somewhere in uh, in Angola or in, uh, in Haiti or in uh, uh, many of the other spots where the U.S. military is at across the world, you don't care if that drone strike is authorized by a black person or a white person or, or an alien. You care about the drone strike. So we need to find out what the military policy and agenda is going to be if we're going to return to our continuing policies of militarism and globalism that America has been on for the past half century. Uh, and also we're going to have, uh, have to have some congressional hearings to find out, well, he was on the board of Raytheon, which is a, a defense contract. The U.S. government just passed a $780 billion defense authorization bill um, with a veto-proof majority at the same time that we can't pass a $900 billion stimulus package for the American people. So it's less important the race of the person who's the Secretary of Defense and more important if they are going to turn away from militarism, turn away from globalism, turn away from a eternal war that America has been, uh, been in and have a policy of peace and actual reconciliation across the globe. Monique? So I think what would be helpful is if we actually took a couple of minutes to give credit to this uh, black man, four-star general, only the sixth uh, black man, African-American, to become a four-star general out of 200. Oh, actually, actually, actually he, was, he was the sixth at the time. He, at, uh, in 2010. Yeah, yes. yeah we've, had, we've, had, uh, we've had some since. Go ahead. Since then. Um, and, and to understand that he has administrative leadership, he has managerial qualities, he's, he's led in war, he's led in 
the end of wars and the bringing of troops home. He is familiar and has worked alongside the president-elect, which, as we can see, is a definite pattern uh, with President-elect Biden. He picks people he knows and has worked well with and can vouch himself for the quality of their work, for their integrity, for their experience, for their expertise, et cetera. So this is a well-qualified first black man to be appointed and hopefully to become uh, this. And second, I want to point out, you know, this law was enacted in 1947, not 1847 or 1747. It's relatively fresh. Uh, it's not constitution-based. It was enacted by the legislature because of feelings they had about who should and should not serve in that position. So I many times lean on uh, constitutional intent, legislative intent, when it makes sense. But in this instance, I believe that the president of the United States should be the person who has the say about his cabinet for every single position. And if there are reasons why, at this point, President-elect Biden is choosing this person, then I think what it meant when I voted for him is that I trust his judgment. So I'm backing this call, uh, and I dare anybody on the Republican side to be a hypocrite and not support it. And, you know, shame on you, Dems. Just shame on you. Get, get, your, get your act together. Scott? Yeah, you know, this is an impressive uh, candidate. He's been four years out of the military, uh, and his statement about the separation between military life and civilian life and protecting the lives of civilians and military people will be part of his duties and responsibilities. Um, you know, uh, if you're going to give a waiver to Mattis because you want him to fight against Donald Trump's worst instincts, it's not uh, really that impressive of a reason to grant a waiver to Mattis, which Democrats and Republicans did. Um, with this candidate or nominee, it's interesting that Democrats are arguing, well, we did it once, we shouldn't do it again. Well, if it's good for Mattis, for whatever reason, it's certainly good uh, for this four-star general. Uh, and it, it really makes no sense for the Democrats to, to fight this or to make Biden use a lot of political capital to not only get the waiver done. Here's a reason to give him the waiver, because he's been out four years and he's been in the war theater. But more importantly, uh, we need to rebuild our relationships worldwide based on the damage done by the Trump administration. Mattis didn't wasn't a backstop against um, Trump's worst instincts. He was a pacifier, if you will. He could only do so much with Donald Trump. And so if you're going to get into that rabbit hole argument, it's as good for this nominee as it was for Mattis. And this guy was far more uh, impressive, but just as impressive as General Mattis. And so I, I think Democrats need to, uh, they can fire, but they're misfiring on this. And we need this gentleman uh, now more than ever, and I think we're going to get him. And if the Dems and the Republicans want to fight it out about it, they're both very hypocritical, and that's something we don't need. We're going to get away from that hypocrisy under Biden-Harris. 
But I think one of the issues you run into is that America has had a cohesive foreign policy since 9-11. That foreign policy has been war. It has been perpetual and continuous war for 20 straight years uh, in this country. So as long as our foreign policy is going to continue being that, I think that we have to have congressional hearings to find out what we're going to do to get off of this war posture. You have people who went in uh, to the military right out of high school and are still fighting these same wars that they were fighting in, uh, in high school in their, in their 30s and 40s. So uh, we can't simply say that we're so uh, we so much want to have a black secretary of defense and I support that goal and I, I like the idea and, I, and if he uh, is uh, properly has the proper uh, footing to do so absolutely but I do think it is proper to inquire into exactly what we are going to do to extricate ourselves from a global war that has lasted 20 years and how we are going to draw that down and concentrate on peace and those are those are proper questions to ask so I don't think it's a question just simmer down and don't ask questions we have to have the conversation. I didn't say we, 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 that wasn't a proper question. In fact, that forced him to why we need him, because he was over with the withdrawal of Iraq and the reduction of troops in many of these theaters of war. And so that makes sense. Now, we can make the inquiry, if you will. I'm talking about the vote, right? The vote of Republicans and Democrats against him because you don't want to do it twice. Well, the, 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 the waiver piece, as uh, Monique said, is a legislative piece, it's not a constitutional piece. And if he's got the demeanor and the expertise, and he's been in the civilian life for four years, you heard how impressive he was in his remarks, then sure, ask those questions, but in the end, confirm him. And don't not, uh, don't uh, refuse to, re to confirm him simply because he's been out of the military only four years versus uh, seven years. Makes no sense. No. <laughs> Let's be clear, foreign policy is driven by the president. One second, one second, Monique, go finish, go ahead. Foreign policy is driven by the president of the United States. The cabinet follows the directives and the policy of the president of the United States. This, this general, now nominee, is not a token black person where we are just getting all excited about having a black person to the fact that we're overlooking qualifications. He is exceedingly qualified in every single area. He's one of the most qualified candidates for our nominees for defense secretary that we've had in 20 plus years. So this is a non-starter for me. And the fact that he is a black person makes it more important, but he could have the same credentials with any color of skin and still be the right person for the job. Yeah, let me say it another way. He just happens to be black. He's extremely qualified, and he just happens to be black. God bless but him. I, look, I, I think many people want to hear what the peace agenda will be, not just the war agenda. So that's the questions that are going to be asked. You're going to have questions about Raytheon. You're going to have questions about Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think that as long as we're on a footing, because remember, Joe Biden got Iraq wrong. He got many of these votes on foreign policies and military inter interventions wrong. We have to ensure that we're getting a defense secretary that's not going to charge us off into another war on foreign lands and, and has an agenda that will bring back a peace agenda. That's the only point I think we have, to, we have to ensure. And if that is the case, then by all means, confirm him. But we still have to have the hearings and ask the questions. All right, Robert, Monique, and Scott, we sure appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Folks, got to go to break. We come back. Uh, we'll talk about a virtual job fair. The goal is to hire a thousand African Americans. You don't want to miss this next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. There are so many things that have happened that if we don't see them for what they are, this is just going to continue to, you know, get out of control. If I don't actually say, "Hey, I'm going to commit." 
to registering 10 people to vote. Right. And that's the thing I think is that we get so hung up on the big picture. Mm -hmm. You know, the big picture matters, but it only matters when we all do small things. Right. That's how it happens. It's not, hey, let's just post on Twitter and post on Instagram because, yes, social media is huge. We know it, but we have to actually get out there and walk the walk. All right, folks, uh, let me show you this here. On Sunday, uh, Cliff and Latasha uh, just sent me this. Uh, on Sunday, uh, there's going to be an event taking place in Columbus, Georgia. In Columbus, Georgia. Uh, it is the We Got Power, Let's Do It Again, Early Vote Tailgate taking place at the Columbus, Columbus Civic Center. Uh, Sunday, December 13th, uh, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. You see right there, it will feature uh, Waka Flocka, Tammy Rivera, uh, it also uh, Vina E. and Sybil Wilkes. They're going to have free food, performances, music, voter, voter education, and more. They literally just sent it to me, and so uh, I might be um, racing back there trying to get us to uh, live stream that uh, on Sunday. And so if you're in Columbus, Georgia, uh, go ahead and make plans to be at this particular event uh, on Sunday being sponsored by Black Voters Matter. All right, folks, black unemployment is at an all-time high, and a lot of people are desperate for new career opportunities that are specifically looking for black professionals. There's an upcoming nationwide virtual career event that connects job seekers uh, to, with these jobs. So joining me right now is Lakeisha Poole and Michael uh, DeForamante, co-creators of the Black Virtual Career Fair. All right, folks, so tell us about this. Uh, you know, how many jobs, how many companies, what are they looking for? So, yeah, we have... <laughs> Go ahead, Matisha. Yeah, so we have uh, 25 companies and thousands of opportunities available at this current job fair, which is going to be tomorrow um, from 9 to 1 p.m. PST. Okay, uh, Michael, go ahead. Sure, well, I think the key to it also is that oftentimes when you hear about a job fair, you think about people who are unemployed. Well, we're, they're looking actually for people who are active candidates as well as people who are passive candidates or people who are, already have jobs but 
Um, they're looking to get better jobs. I think the the thing that is different here is that people think that because we're in a pandemic, nobody's hiring. But we found 25 companies, as we have found all year long, who are looking to hire and in particular are looking to hire qualified black talent. So that's what we're bringing together. Well, first of all, I, I never use for me. This is just some I always do. First of all, if you you gonna get hired, you gonna hire somebody qualified anyway. So you know you go you just you looking for black talent. And what kind of jobs though? That's the first thing jumps out. So uh, if I'm sitting interested, like what kind of jobs? What kind of companies? Um, so we are participating companies range from Hallmark. We have nine platinum companies, Accenture Federal Services. I can rattle them off, but um, it'd be easier to go to the website. But in terms of the job opportunities, we have a focus on tech positions and general positions. And by general, I mean general corporate positions. So we have a variety of opportunities in sales, financial services, human resources, um, et cetera. So there's a lot of opportunities. Also, we have a lot of graphic and art uh, design as well. Uh, so, Michael, how is this career fair going to be held? So, how I mean, what's going to be the platform? Is there going to is there one on one? Are you going to different rooms to chat with people? Uh, uh, explain, folks, folks, how it's going to work out. That's actually exactly how it works. It's a virtual career fair. So, we, on our platform, you were able to go from booth to booth. Uh, when you enter a booth online virtually, you can actually enter a chat room. On the other end, will be recruiters and hiring managers from these twenty-five companies. Each booth is unique. Each booth has a uh, job board, so you'll see what jobs are available. And you can video, audio, or text chat with recruiters and hiring managers on the spot. We ask you to fill out a profile. We ask you to upload your resume. They can see that profile and resume while you're live in the booth. And you can actually do a group chat with the rest of the people in the booth, or you can go to a one-on-one -on -one and have an interview on the spot. So we recommend that people are ready because we have known in the past people to leave our fair and within a week, two, three, four down the line, they actually have a job. So this works, and we've done it before a number of times. So Lakeisha, how do how do we access this? First of all, are folks required to register, or is it just anybody pop in? So yeah, there is a registration process. They just go to virtual.blackbcf.com, and that will take you to our free so, 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 so hold on one second, one second. Okay, so the lower third we have says blackvcf.com, but you said it's www.virtualblackvcf.com? Yes, that's the platform where people can actually participate into the current December fair. So on that page, you can register and you fill out a profile. You create a profile and up, up, upload your resume. <laughs> okay, so again, so we, so I'm going to just go ahead and pull it up because I just want to make sure that we're sending folks uh, to uh, the right place uh, for the uh, career fair. So it's virtual, uh, it's uh, virtual black vcf.com it's virtual virtual dot, black. Virtual dot okay gotcha Vir virtual dot black vcf.com correct okay but if you go to black vcf.com it has the details on it so absolutely so so, go wrong either way. so to register where do i go virtual dot if you want to register right away go to virtual dot black vcf.com if you want more information on the fair the uh, job opportunities, the companies are participating, then go to blackvcf.com. You get all the background information. All right, then. Uh, well, cool. So this is this is a great deal. Um, how many of these events have you had uh, this year? This year we've had, uh, this will be our third event this year. We had one in January. Uh, we have one in October. And in fact, the demand was so 
uh, much for you know, October that we put the de December one on the schedule. It wasn't even on the schedule until we did the October event, and we, we are meeting demand with the December event. The event after that will be in uh, February, February 18th, when we're doing a healthcare fair, and we're really excited about that, as a matter of fact. All right, then. So, again, uh, folks, go to my iPad. I'm showing it. So go to everybody who's watching and listening. Go to virtual.blackv, as in Victor, C as in Cat, F as in Frank, dot com. Virtual.blackvcf.com. Uh, you've got, uh, again, more than, um, so what, a 1,000 jobs that are going to be uh, available for tomorrow? Yes, a 1,000 jobs, 25 employers. All right, then. 25 employers, 1,000 jobs. Folks, uh, please uh, make it uh, possible. Lakeisha, Michael, we certainly uh, thank you for joining us, uh, providing the information. And again, tomorrow it is 12 Eastern, 12 Eastern to 3 to 4 p.m., right? Correct. Yes, so 12, 12 Eastern. Eastern. Sorry, I'm looking at I guess PST on the uh, website. Uh, so it's 12 p.m. Eastern uh, to 4 p.m. Eastern. Or, folks, that's uh, going to be 11 a.m. Central to 3 p.m. Central and 9 a.m. Pacific to 1 p.m. Pacific uh, tomorrow. And so, and they have to register by a certain time? No, uh, preferably this evening so they can prepare. <laughs> but they can register anytime now and throughout the event tomorrow. Okay, all right then. Folks, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so Thank much, Roland. All right, folks. Uh, we have so much, so, so much. God, news we had to cover. I didn't get to uh, crazy as white people. We'll get to that tomorrow with our uh, regular Thursday panel, uh, folks. Uh, just for just for for everyone, everyone here. But we want you to um, uh, support what we do. First of all, we we we, we created. These different segments. First of all, we we should have had our our, our tech stinger with, with that, uh, but that was uh, that was my fault there. That's really a technical piece they're doing here. So here's the piece. We created this for a reason, and the reason we created this is for all the topics that you heard us cover on this show today. Okay, I got no problem with these other shows out here. You can watch MSNBC, you can watch CNN, you can watch Fox News. But are they gonna are they gonna share with you a black virtual career fair? Answers no. Uh, are they going to really break down the subject that we actually had today? No. That's why we need your support for what we do. Uh, again, when I say I'm going to Georgia, I am. We're going to be in Georgia. We're going to be on the ground. We're going to be live streaming these events. Uh, early voting starts on Monday. We're going to be there on Monday. Uh, I'm going to try to get to uh, uh, Georgia early to be able to cover uh, this uh, event on Sunday with Black uh, Voters Matter. Folks, this is why we have to have our own platforms. Uh, and the reality is we have created this show, uh, created the technology for us to be able to present the kind of news to you. So that means we need your support as well. Uh, thousands of you watching on YouTube right now, also on Facebook and on Periscope, you can support us. You can join right there on YouTube. You can also join on Facebook, or you can simply uh, join our Bring the Funk fan club. Our goal is to get 50, 50, 50, uh, 20,000 of our followers to contribute at least 50 bucks each for the whole year. That's $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day. Uh, you can do so by, then you can give, if you, if you can't give that, fine. You can give less, if you can give more, that's great as well. Uh, I wanna just, uh, first of all, you can give cash app, dollar sign RM unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered, venmo.com is forward slash RM unfiltered. Uh, Keenan, we need to add a Zelle to this, which is the Roland at rolandsmartin.com email. Uh, and then of course, you can send a money order to New Vision Media Inc, 1625 K Street, Northwest, Suite 400, Washington DC 2006. Uh, certainly want to thank uh, want to thank our uh, folks who, who contribute to our show.
show. Wishing you a season that glistens with all things happy and bright. Uh, happy belated birthday. Thank you for all that you do. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Marvin Bryan. So I certainly appreciate Marvin. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, Benny Briggs, uh, certainly. Uh, ben, Benny, thank you so very much uh, for your generous uh, endorsement. And uh, Benny said, happy belated birthday to you uh, and your mom. Keep up the good work. Uh, Benny, I appreciate that. And she appreciates that. Uh, this is Georgia. George, I can't make it out. George, uh, Turkolo, Turchin. So, George, if you're watching, let me know exactly what it is. I see the T-U-C-H. I can't make out the last three letters, uh, but I certainly appreciate it. Uh, George uh, is from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So, George, I appreciate that. What we got here? Uh, Hot Springs. Uh, what was it? Hot Springs, Arkansas. Is that Hot Springs, Arkansas? I think we got there to see. Let's see here. My aunt, I love what you're doing. Presently, presenting black people as they are intelligent, thoughtful, and more than just a soundbite. Keep up the good fight. Yours, Mrs. Ella Seymour and Mr. Kelly Braxton. Um, and then, P.S., when did you give up your fishing show? Ha, ha, ha. And know there's a famous fisherman named Roland Martin. White guy. I ain't him. I can't stand fishing. Uh, so that's funny as well. So let me uh, see if I can read one more, y'all. Uh, one of our followers who sent in their uh, Green and Funk fan club contribution. Uh, let's see here. Um, Thanks for helping me realize that when the Bible says it's better for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man. Thank you for your show. Uh, and because this person says, uh, this is Michael Capers. He said, I was one watching for free. Michael, 200 bucks. I certainly appreciate that, Michael. Thank you so very much. Again, y'all, we have phenomenal fans. They have been hugely supportive of this show, contributing to what we do. We thank all of them every Friday, of course. Uh, we run the listing of all the people who join our fan club. If, you're, if you've given and your name is not there, simply send me an email. Go to RolandSmartin.com. Go to RolandMartinFilter.com. Send me an email, and we'll get that taken care of. All right, folks, that's it for me. I shall see y'all tomorrow. Have a good one. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.